1: The CS Lewis Podcast
2: with Alistair McGrath.
1: Hello there, it's Justin Briley from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome to the first of a couple of bonus episodes of the CS Lewis Podcast, featuring a conversation I hosted with Alistair McGrath, alongside my wife, the Reverend Lucy Briley, and my colleague Ruth Jackson from back in 2020. At the time, Alistair had just released his memoir Through a Glass Darkly: Journeys Through Science, Faith and Doubt. And you'll hear what happened. Thanks to everyone, by the way, who came in person or online to our Unbelievable conference in London. Alistair, of course, was delivering one of the keynote addresses and participating in a roundtable discussion. It was a great day. If you couldn't make it, but you want to get hold of the digital download of the conference, then just go to premierunbelievable.com. Click on shop to order the download of the conference. Also, that's the place to sign up for our newsletter and keep informed about all things Premier Unbelievable. In fact, we've just launched another podcast you might like to check out, Unapologetic, helping you understand, defend and share your faith with confidence. Some great episodes with some great Christian thinkers coming your way on that podcast thanks for listening to this one though and to the person who left a review saying so glad to find this podcast a wealth of information I'm listening over and over Uh, please do rate and review us it helps others to discover the podcast as well okay time for this live listener Q&A conversation from the archives with Alistair I'm Justin Briley and it's very good to have you with us Um, Alistair is a renowned Oxford theologian with a background in science, he's a prolific author on science, faith, apologetics, C.S. Lewis, doctrine, church history, you name it. Uh, and his latest book is a memoir, Through a Glass Darkly, Journeys Through Science, Faith and Doubt. Um, Ruth, feel free to uh, put your camera on as well. I think Alistair's joined us uh, in, uh, in his um, study by the looks of it. Uh, Alistair, welcome along to the programme. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Justin.
2: It's really good to be with you and with all these
1: people who are tuning in as well. Yes, well, we're, we're really looking forward to the questions that are going to be coming in tonight. Uh, now, uh, tonight's live stream is hosted by myself, Justin Briley, my wife, Reverend Lucy Briley, good who's evening, with me here, here in our home. And uh, Unbelievable's new youth specialist, Ruth Jackson. Give us a wave and a hello, Ruth.
0: Hi.
1: Great to have you as well. And uh, you're going to be asking questions along with us of Alistair Butt. Uh, you are very welcome yourself to ask questions of Alistair. Uh, so we would love to hear from you. If uh, you're watching, wherever you're watching from, you can ask a question by simply leaving a comment, whether that's on our YouTube channel or on one of the Facebook pages that we're streaming via. Uh, do send them in. We've got someone standing by ready to collate all of those questions. And so we'll be delighted to, uh, to have your questions and we'll choose the cream of the crop, um, now, we've called it Ask Alistair McGrath Anything, but of course, Alistair has his specialities. so those are the things to really ask on. Science and faith, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, a world expert on C.S. Lewis, in fact we've got a, an exciting announcement about that very soon, um, and uh, theology, church history, doctrine, uh, so, so that's that's the way to go, and, and about Alistair's life, of course, as related in this new book. Um, So uh, do get typing your questions now. Uh, We would love to have those questions coming in. The earlier, the better, I would advise. And just before we um, come to Alistair for an introduction, I just want to make you as well aware of uh, this, that you can keep in touch with the show. More from Unbelievable uh, by visiting our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash unbelievable. You can sign up to a regular newsletter there. Uh, If you're watching from the USA on today's feed, uh, we've got a brand new website specifically aimed at folk out in the US, unbelievable.show, extra resources and the newsletter available from there as well. So uh, do go and check those out. I'll remind you of those a little bit later. Um, Alistair, um, it's so good to have you with us today. Um, How have the last seven months or so treated you?
2: Well, Justin, seven months ago I had never heard of Zoom. <laughs> 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 it's one of those things I've discovered. And I think it's great. It means I can keep in touch with all my students who I'm not allowed to meet. But I'm just seeing them as, as faces on screens. Now I wish I could say hello or make them a cup of tea or something. So it all it's all very strange. And I'm not sure I like this new world.
1: <laughs> no, no, I don't not sure anyone would have chosen this. Um, but I, I mean How have you found it in terms of pursuing your studies? Um, Have you found actually some 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 academics I've spoken to have quite enjoyed sort of not having to go off, jet off to conferences and things and actually being able to concentrate from home.
2: But what's the experience been like for you on that front? It's much easier because I still go to conferences, but I go virtually, so I don't have to fly anywhere. Um, And of course, um, all the books and articles I need are available online, so I can do everything from this study here. It was a very small study, but I can get everything I want. So actually, I'm one of the very few people who probably has actually found this crisis to be less unbearable than others have.
1: Yes. Um, What about church? Have you missed sort of being able to gather in person? Have you been able to do that more recently?
2: No, I, I go to church virtually uh, and it's not the same thing, I have to say. And I'm sure everyone listening will feel that experience as well, that really we seem to be missing something very important. And we're just all wondering when are we going to get it back?
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's been our experiences as, as well. We're, we're, we're hoping for things to normalise when when they can. Um, anyway, um, uh, we've got a wonderful new book from you, um, Through a Glass Darkly. I'm going to hold it up to the screen there. Um, Journeys Through Science, Faith and Doubt, um, and Ruth is going to kick us off here because uh, Ruth gave it a glowing review in Premier Christianity magazine just recently. So Ruth, why don't you lead us off here with uh, some questions, and then we'll, we'll we'll go to some of the questions that we've had coming in uh, via the Facebook and YouTube.
0: Sure. So I guess the first question, Alistair, um, I love the title, um, but I guess like, what was behind the title? What was the reason for that title, Through a Glass Darkly?
2: I think it's all because when I, was, when I was a teenager, I longed for absolute certainty. I wanted to know exactly what was right. I couldn't cope with ambiguity. I couldn't cope with any degree of uncertainty. And in one sense, the, the, the book is describing how I realized that actually you couldn't be absolutely certain in the sense that you cannot prove things that really matter to be true, even though in your heart you know they are. And so Through Glass Darkly, of course, is from Paul's head to the first head to Corinthians chapter 13. It's very much this idea that here on earth, we, we kind of see things a bit fuzzily. But one day we will see them as they really are. But actually, we can learn to live with that. We do not need to be able to prove our core beliefs. We can trust they are right and get on with the business of Christian living.
0: And it's, it's kind of a, a memoir, isn't it? You, you talk about your own experience and obviously you bring in science and religion and theology and all sorts of things. But um, in some ways it's probably the most in depth that I've got to read about you, about your story and so I suppose one of the questions lots of people have been asking me um, and I know a little bit more just from having read the book but was your conversion uh, sort of one definitive moment or were there lots of little points along the way that sort of gradually led you from atheism towards theism?
2: I think there were there were points there were a series of points for example I began to think um, you know I'm very critical of religious people I ask them to prove there's a god and they can't but actually, if they were to turn back to me and say, Alistair, can you prove there is no God? Well, the answer would be no. And, and nobody happily to ask me that question. But there are a series of things like that, which, if you like, um, made me realize that atheism was not as intellectually secure as I would have liked it. So I began as an atheist, became a Christian. I think there were probably several points along the road. It wasn't as if there was a sudden blinding flash. And that was it. It was much more a growing realisation. Atheism just doesn't work. And this thing called Christianity, which I haven't really understood, actually, it seems to be really rather exciting. And actually, it might work.
0: And was there anything in particular that you found, I guess, particularly compelling or like compelling about the Christian faith or compelling about God? Was there anything that really drew you to Christianity?
2: I'm, I'm an academic so this won't surprise you I mean for me Christianity's ability to make sense of things that to me was really important I hadn't realized that um, and it was only when some people um, told me about that and when I started to read C.S. Lewis, I suddenly saw this and thought, this is so important. Now, of course, that's only one of Christianity's multiple aspects. It, it, It does so much more than that. But for me, that was the really important thing. If you like that, drew me to faith and then everything else followed in due course. But that was how I came in. That was where I started my exploration of faith.
0: And you mentioned C.S. Lewis there, and obviously you've written quite a lot about C.S. Lewis, lots of which are on the shelf behind me. And was was there something in particular about C.S. Lewis that drew you to his writing? You know, was there something that really jumped out at you that really helped you on your journey?
2: Well, you mustn't laugh. But um, what happened was this. Um, I just become a Christian. I was asking my Christian friends all these difficult questions like, <laughs> why do you believe in the Trinity? And they, they got fed up. And one of them in exasperation said, Alistair, why don't you read C.S. Lewis? And I had yet didn't really recognize the name. I, I knew C.S. Lewis had written a book about lions or something. Um, but I, So anyway, I went and um, bought one of these books, sought out my conversion, and started to read it. And, and it, it was as if someone had turned the light on, as if something had clicked. And I suddenly realized, hey, this makes sense, and this guy is good. He writes well, but the ideas are great. And, you know, nearly 50 years later, I'm still reading him, still getting more out of him. He really, he's, you keep going back to him because there's so much there to discover.
0: And do you think it's partly the kind of intellectual credibility of what he's saying, but also his appeal to the imagination?
2: I think there are three things. First of all, he, he really knows what he's talking about. He writes extremely well. That's another thing to say. But you're right. He also avoids this very dull, simple appeal to reason. I mean, I value that, but there's more to it than that. And what Lewis helps us to, 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 to realize is that actually Christianity gives us a new vision of reality. It excites us. It enables us to, to picture Christianity in our minds. And for a lot of people, that's really important. And Lewis Hank brings that art so much more clearly than many.
0: And obviously, along your journey, people had answers for some of the questions that you had and you you began to see that there were um, sort of rational rationality to things that you maybe didn't think so before. But you do say in the book, and I completely agree with you, that actually we need to learn to live with a level of uncertainty. So I guess acknowledging that there are going to be some unanswered questions. I suppose that's all well and good theoretically, but how do we practically live with those unanswered questions in our life?
2: I think it's reassuring, I think that's the point I want to make, that in effect, um, what we have to do is, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, whether you're talking about religious or political or ethical views, the things in life that really matter, we cannot prove absolutely to be right. I can prove to you that two and two make four, but frankly, it's not going to make any difference to anyone but things that really matter, we can't prove. And actually I was an atheist who who doubted. I think that's a very important point. People think doubt is specific to Christianity, it's not everyone's in the same boat here. We Christians are just honest about it. I think that's a very important point to make. And once you see that, actually you stop you stop worrying about it. You realise this is just the way things are. The really big things are just too big for us to uh, get our heads around. And so we can learn to live with a degree of uncertainty, but that does not mean we're doubting. It just means that we know these things are so important, so massive, that we cannot actually hope to prove they are right. When I was reading the, the memoir, Alistair, um,
1: there was a moment that, that I found quite interesting that was evidently very significant for you. You, I think you were an undergraduate at Wadham College in, in Oxford and uh, studying, obviously, biochemistry. And And it was actually a, a sermon by another uh, biochemist, I think, that really put some of the pieces together for you. Could you Could you describe
2: what that was and who it was? Yes. Um, I, I I was a scientist at Oxford and I'd just become a Christian. And obviously, I wanted to work out how can I hold my faith and my science together? Or do I have to give one of them up? You know, it's it's quite a big thing to think through. Um, And I I knew that I had lots of friends who were Christians and scientists, so I knew it could be done, but I just hadn't figured it out for myself. And then this man, Professor Charles Coulson, who was a very famous Methodist Day preacher, but also a professor of chemistry at Oxford, uh, gave this sermon in our college chapel on how he held his science and his faith together. And it was only about 10 minutes long. But, you know, I still to this day use that framework I heard nearly 50 years ago because it was so good. It was uh, this idea. You've got Christianity, which is one perspective on life, got science, which is another perspective. And you can bring these together, the different perspectives, but together they give you this bigger insight into the whole. And actually, it was as if I went away saying I can now see this. That's wonderful. And so actually it, it made me realize that my Christianity and my faith and my so science were not opposed to each other. They could enrich each other. And that was a really important moment.
0: I suppose Charles Coulson, like you, was an academic. Well, he wasn't a theologian, but he was an academic, but also a minister. And you talk quite a lot about both in, in the book, about your sort of journey through academia, but also how you went into ministerial training. How do you balance that kind of academic vigorousness? That's definitely not a word. The rigorous academy with the kind of pastoral care. How, how do you sort of juggle the two?
2: I think what you have to do is to say, um, I'm imagining I'm having conversations with people and some of them will want to talk about the history of Christian theology. Some of them want to talk about, um, you know, the interconnection of religious ideas. A lot will want to know, well, what difference does it make to my life? And therefore, what I need to do is be able to answer that question. If Christ mm-hmm. is indeed God, what difference does that make? If um, if I understand sin properly, how does that Help me understand myself and how I deal with the various problems I'm facing. So if you like, I'm trying all the time to identify the richness of the Christian faith and relate that to different audiences. Well, why don't
1: we start with some of the questions that are starting to come in? We've got we've got a great deal coming in and and some of them I'm sure will um be related to the book um as well as we as we go along loose you've got one here i think
3: yes i mean it really follows quite nicely on from from that conversation um, andy hunt asks on the unbelievable youtube page he says how did someone with a mind like lewis live humbly as a churchgoer with attitudes and ideas that he must have disagreed with
2: Andy, that is a really good question because we know Lewis struggled with that. Lewis struggled, I think, with two things. One of them was fame. He, he When um, he became so well-known in the late 1940s, Lewis actually really almost found it impossible to cope with being a celebrity. and He didn't know what to do with it, and eventually he found a way of dealing with it. But it really involved saying, look, I'm not really very good. I just seem to have struck a lucky. Um, I'm not going to get too... Um, too um, excited about myself. I think that was a very important point. But I think also um, Lewis was very much aware that he seemed to have been given a gift. And actually gifts are given in order to be used. And Lewis very much had this idea that he really needed to try and um, serve people. So you have this very, very clear rejection of any celebrity culture on Lewis's part. I think is very interesting. We've got a
1: question here um, from from a Justin actually, uh, Justin Dickerson. Um, And really this relates to to what you were saying earlier, which is uh, this fact you had to come to terms with the fact you can't have necessarily a a logical proof for God or Christianity. Um, Because Justin says, I'm an agnostic and I like to look at both Christianity and atheism. So my question is what evidence can you provide for the existence for God? And what evidence is there for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I suppose my question on top of that is, even with evidence, how, how, if you like, where does that actually get us in terms of, you know, do, does it mean we've got some cast iron, if you like, theory <laughs> that, that, that could never be questioned? Because I suspect we're never
2: going to get that in, in this realm, are we? No, we're not. I think the thing to realize about evidence is that evidence is not one unambiguous thing. It's always lots of clues. Um, Going back to Lewis, he talks about uh, various things as clues to the meaning of the universe. And the point he's making is there are lots of things and you have to figure out what is the best way of making sense of these overall, because they could be taken to point in different directions. For example, look at the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Some people are saying, well, the body of Christ was stolen. And you know, that might be one way of looking at it. but Of course, there's a better way of looking at it. And so what I think you need to do is to say that if you're a scientist, you'll recognize immediately that we're talking about what's called inference to the best explanation and that means in effect recognizing that there can be several ways of understanding some but nevertheless one is simpler one's more elegant one actually holds things together better so i think that's the very important thing what's the evidence existence of god well for me it's that we are able to make so much sense of things actually this really is about um some sort of resonance between the way we think and the way the world is and of course if you're a christian that resonates so strong with the idea of humanity bearing God's image and understanding a creation that God has made, but it's not a knockdown thing. It's a, it's a realization. Actually, this makes more sense than anyone else. And exploring it, opening it up, and realizing just how much light it casts on things. I, I was
1: going to say, Alistair, you, you very kindly wrote the foreword to my to my book, which was sort of my my case for faith a few years ago, and and looking at Justin's question there, saying he likes to look at both Christianity and atheism. That's always been the, the drum that I've banged, which is you do need to look at both. Actually, it's not that Christianity has all of the burden of evidence and proof on itself, but atheists need to make an account for the way they see the world. And as I see it, what you're going to be doing in the end is asking which makes best sense of reality. And, and I guess from your perspective, you see that Christianity answers more questions than, than a nat- naturalistic
2: sort of atheistic account does. I think that that's that's certainly the way I think, and it's the way I found to work very very well in my own life. What I would say is that uh, there are many atheists who, of course, are, are very gracious about this, but there are some, unfortunately, who will say, "No, we're right. That's it. End of. You know, you're mad. You're bad. You're sad. You know, <laughs> you know." And I think we need to just say, "Look, that that." Let's move away from that. It's not that simple. That's simply a dogmatic form of atheism, that there are more intelligent atheists who can see why people believe in God. They don't share that, but they can certainly see what the evidence is and why it is so attractive and so life-changing. People, you know, John Gray is a very good example, of an atheist philosopher who absolutely gets it, sees why people are, are drawn to God, doesn't do it himself, but can understand why others do. Just just on the second
1: part of his question, he he did ask, do you think there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Where,
2: Where do you go with that? I go with saying, we have to ask, what's the best way of making sense of the, the New Testament accounts of what is happening? And above all, the difference it makes to the lives of the disciples. I think that is really a very important point. Something happens to, in effect, energize, to transform a bunch of traumatized people into someone who say, we found something, let's go and tell the world and change it. And that to me is, it, it doesn't prove but it's highly suggestive. It fits into this big picture we've been talking about. Ruth, do you want to take the next one?
0: Yeah, so Alistair, for, for a lot of the people I speak to, I speak to a lot of youth workers, parents, things like that, and a lot of people who come into contact with you, their initial first contact is at school through reading textbooks that you've written when they're studying religious studies, and that was certainly my, my experience as well. So I've had quite a few people ask me what you would say if you could to your teenage self. I know you talked about the fact that you sort of struggled with certainty and you wanted to be certain, um, but is there anything in particular you would go back and say to your Teenage self, if you could now,
2: I think there is, and, and the danger is I'm going to sound very condescending, but um, <laughs> you know, my teenage self, I'm sure, would forgive me. <laughs> um, I think there, there are two things I'd want to say. One is that um, when I was a teenager, I felt that um, the that believing in God was what Sigmund Freud calls a wish fulfillment. You want this to be the case because you need it to be the case. In other words, religion was just made up because you couldn't cope with life. It was an invention. What I would now say to my teenage self is, look, everyone does this. That actually atheism, in one sense, is a desire there will be no God so we can do what we like. We're completely autonomous. And interestingly, many atheist philosophers will explicitly say that their desire that there should be no God precedes the arguments they develop to show that. That's one thing I would want to say. The other thing which I think I would say very, very clearly to my teenage self is that things are a bit more complicated than you thought. And one of the reasons I was drawn to atheism was because it was so simple. No God, end of discussion. But, you know, by closing that question down, you have to open up so many others. And I think one of the things I'd want to say is that um, as you get older, it becomes much easier to cope with complexity, with uncertainty, with ambiguity. and You begin to realize life makes a lot more sense when you do that. So That's something I don't think I was ready to hear when I was 16 or 17 years old. Let me go for for one here. We've got we've
1: got lots of questions on science and faith coming in. I'm gonna I'm gonna save some of those up um, because we've we've got some other interesting areas coming through. Um, So this one, uh, if we scroll to the top,
3: (laughs) (laughs) so many questions. So many questions. Gosh, about the Trinity.
1: Yes, it was a question about the Trinity, and I can't quite see on my screen now, but I can remember it. Um, It was oh here it is. it's, uh, how yeah. do you explain, sorry, you're going to ask this one, Lucy, yes. <laughs> Go um,
3: how do you explain to Muslims, other believers, and, and in fact, even some Christians, that we have one God and not three, especially as you know, we read in scripture that Jesus in heaven will sit at the right hand of God the Father?
2: Well, you know, when I was an atheist, the Trinity was one of the reasons why I was an atheist, because it makes no sense. It's bad celestial mathematics. <laughs> um, and I just I said, what is this nonsense? It makes no sense at all. It's rubbish. And then uh, I began to realize what this was all about. So I'll tell you what it's all about and then answer the question. It's all about realizing that, that God is is so amazing, so massive, that actually we cannot do just terms. We've got to try and weave together the enormously rich biblical witness to God as creator, redeemer, sustainer, as present at creation, as there in Christ redeeming the world and present through the Spirit. Now, all of these things are true. And what you've got to do is make sure you hold all of these together and don't lose anything. And the Trinity is really an attempt to hold the whole thing together and say, this is the Christian vision of God. It is so hard to compartmentalize it, so hard to take it in, but then do you expect the human mind to take in something as rich as God? The Trinity is really a safety doctrine saying, here are the things you need to hold together. Don't lose any of them. they're all very, very precious. So to Muslims, no, Christians don't believe in three gods. They believe in a wonderful single God but a god of immense richness which means we are forced to in effect talk about him using these different ways of thinking. So it's not about um, you know breaking God down into little bits. It's it is saying let us do all we can to hold this massive vision of God together and in fact that's why Christians worship because there's this wonderful vision of God which actually overwhelms us and makes us think that maybe since we can't really understand this properly we can at least worship this God. So for me, it's really very exciting indeed. Mm. The danger is always that we reduce God to, to a manageable concept, to something we can take in. And in many ways, what God try and do is say we need rather to try and expand our minds to take in God fully. And if we can't do that, then at least let's say here are the essential things we need to say about God and we can't lose sight of any of them. Maybe simpler to lose one or two of them, but it's not the Christian God we're talking about anymore. I'll, I'll do one now
1: and, and then I'll pass it to Ruth to, to pick a question. Thanks, Thanks, by the way, everyone who's texting the questions in. These, these are really great questions. Um, so uh, another toughie to put to you, Alistair. Uh, Coulter asks, um, since different Christians do believe different things, Catholics believe one thing, Protestants another, Orthodox another, how do you explain
2: the variety of kinds of Christianity that, that exist in the world? I had the privilege of preaching at a friend's memorial service recently. And um, people came and they gave eulogies and that they talked about this person who they knew. And as they talked, it became clear to me, yes, they were all talking about the same person, but each of them had fixed on to a different aspect. This is what was really important about this person for them. And, you know, that there's that's really what's going on here with Christianity because, you know, there, there are many forms of Christianity which really take delight in the transformation of our experience. There are others which say it is so important to have an uh, sort of an authority which helps us to work out what's happening. There are others who say, look, it's Christ who is really important. You say, yes, no, no, but what about the spirit? So, in effect, what I'm trying to say is that one of the reasons why there is a variety within Christianity is because God deals with us as individuals and each of us finds something in Christianity which really matters to them. In my own case, as I was saying, you know, my conversion was very much about here's a way of making sense of things. And, you know, maybe one percent of Christians would agree with me. But, you know, um, that was what got me in. And so what I want to say is very often the different varieties of Christianity arise because people have said this is what really matters. And they place the emphasis there. So it's very often a difference of emphasis. Though I do appreciate that there's more to it than that. There, there, There is, of course, I suppose, that
1: mere Christianity as well that Lewis was so keen on on promoting as well. The, 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 the things that are core, if you like, to all of those different traditions. And, and I suppose that's important that we also make people aware that uh, these aren't different religions in a sense.
2: Yeah, that I think, no, I think, what you, think you're that right. Way. What we need to say, what C.S. Lewis would want to say is that, um, you know, there's this common core um and we need to hold on to that because it reminds us we all actually share in the same gospel but very often you'll find people place the emphasis here rather than there or in effect they will say and we apply it in this way rather than that way so what i think we need to do is be respectful towards the way in which people implement their faith but at the same time recognizing that there is this shared trust in christ which really for me at any rate stands at the heart of the christian faith
3: I suppose one of the areas um, in church life where, where we do have some differences is, is around the Eucharist, the sharing of communion. And we talked um, at the beginning about how we're all missing church. And of course, that's one of the, the things that, that we're missing. And uh, we've had some interesting conversations in our church about how that can happen practically when we do gather together. But we've had a question on the Eucharist um, via the unbelievable YouTube page. Um I don't know the name of the person who's asked this question, but they say, do you think the early church believed and or taught that the Eucharist was the literal flesh and blood of Jesus? Or is there a variety of interpretations evident in the early church
2: fathers? As I read them, and I, I'm saying that because people might disagree with me, but as I read them, I do see a variety of interpretations. Um, But certainly the idea that this really is in some way the flesh and blood of Christ is there amongst those interpretations. I think what the early Christians found to be so important was that this was a way, not simply of remembering Christ as someone in the past, but remembering the event on which our faith is based and affirming his presence right now. And the fact that he is with us even when we go through difficult times today. So if you like, it's very much about saying this Christ who we are remembering is still a living presence. We're celebrating this great event of redemption and we are then going to take this event to the world and help them to see what this is all about. So it's it's very complex. And what you'll find is that most Christians again will say, well, I find really helpful about the bread and wine is this. I'll say, well, no, no, I find this. It's about, for example, internalizing faith, feeding on Christ. So again, it's one of those reasons, one of those things where I have my views and I, I've thought them through. But I'm prepared to respect other views because I realise this is how our faith works.
3: And and how do you think the the early church fathers, the early church writers, um, viewed it themselves? Do you think that they they had a variety of understandings?
2: They saw it as being central, that's the first thing. This was what they did every Sunday. It was really important for them. And it was about um, remembering. It was about, in effect, affirming in the present. this is what Christianity is all about, and looking to the future. Because, in effect, in thinking about Christ, um, you know, doing the bread and wine last supper, you remember that we were going to do this again in the kingdom of God. You know, there's this sort of sense of looking to the future as well. So they thought was very important. And again, we do find a slight divergence in interpretation. But again, we can live with that, I think. Ruth, do you want to take the next one?
0: So I'm going to I'm gonna ask you one about science because I feel like lots of people have got ones about God and science and there may be something in this question that answers in, in a sense lots of other people's questions so this has been written um, on the premier website by someone called Alexander and he's obviously a scientist himself and he would love to know what insights and or experiences led Professor McGrath to explore the connection between science and theology and then he's got a second part which is huge so obviously feel free to make it a short or long as you like. How have you been able to navigate around the claims and accusations of science supposedly
2: disproving God? Well that's a great question Alexander. Um, Why did I really find this question to be important? Well you see it's because I used to be a scientist. Um, I studied the uh, the sciences at high school Um, I was convinced that if you studied science you had to be an atheist um, then I went up to Oxford to study chemistry. And in fact, then went on to do a doctorate in um, the biological sciences. But for me, this was a very relevant question. How can I hold together my science and my faith rather than just saying they're not incompatible, but saying actually they go together? So let, let's just look at this because I'm sure there are many who would want me to explore this. And I'm very glad to do this. Uh, it is very important to realize that science and faith are different. And many people would say because they're so different, they are incompatible, which they're not. They're just different. They are different angles on things, different ways of looking at things. And you might think, for example, of science and ethics. You know, Science and ethics are very different, are different ways of thinking. But why should scientists not be moral? You know, the point I'm trying to make is they are different, but they can still be brought together and give you a richer vision of reality. And what i learned over the years was that you can think of um, science and faith as engaging in three different ways. And all of these are helpful. You don't have to choose which is right. You can see them all as being ways that help you. First of all, they give us different perspectives on reality. If you like, science helps us think about how things function. That's really important. But The Christian faith tells you what they mean. And that that is a very important question. And you know, science just doesn't do that. So if you like, they are both looking at the same thing and this is about how it works, this is about what it means. And that's a very important point because what you're saying is that science is great, but it's incomplete. If you like, there's a big picture of reality. Science fills in part of that big picture, but only part of it. And we need more than that to live meaningful lives. That's what faith does. Or you can say science and faith engage questions at different levels. Uh, in other words, uh, again, for example, uh, meaning and function might be one way. Or the third way, I think it's especially interesting. It's about saying science and faith offer us different maps of reality. That, in effect, uh, scientists try and say, let's, let's try and understand um, how we think about the, our world um, functioning. And again, um, the Christian believer is saying it's all about values. It's all about um what these things mean so point i'm trying to make is there are a number of frameworks you can use to hold together science and faith and here's the really important point i want to make it's not as if you have to say here's my science here's my faith they're different and they can't talk to each other for me they enrich each other let me give you an example um i look at the night sky and as a scientist i would say it is amazing you know it's so vast it's astonishing and then my Christian faith kicks in. I think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. I think, my goodness, um, my science brings home to me even more just how important, how majestic God is. So if you like, my science there is helping me appreciate all the more what my faith is telling me. So there are ways of doing this. The other thing is this, again, as a theologian, I believe strongly in the idea of, of creation and therefore, if I appreciate the beauty of the world, then actually I'm also thinking about the greater beauty of God expressed in the world. So actually I find this is a very helpful way of thinking. It took me a long time to put all of this together and people listening to me may be at different places on their intellectual journeys. What I want to say to you is there is a good destination you can arrive at and you can hold these together, not artificially, but naturally and meaningfully
1: thank you for being with us on today's podcast we'll continue this conversation with Alistair on the next one continuing to respond to listener questions on science faith and doubt and talking about his memoir through a glass darkly don't forget you can now find out all about the show keep up to date get bonus content and support us too from our new website premierunbelievable.com that's also the place to click on shop to get the digital download of our recent conference with Alistair uh, if you missed it don't worry you can catch up premierunbelievable.com for now thanks for being with us and see you next time